Claude told me that you're in the middle of a series on Advent. We'll talk about Advent in just a second. And uh, he said that um, what, we're, what you're doing through this whole series is talking about the longings of your heart. So Advent, like uh, the longings of your heart pointing to its fulfillment in Jesus. And so the longings of your heart with this one is, is racial reconciliation. And that's, that's a topic that I'm passionate about. And, um, and when I talk on racial reconciliation here in Boston, I've done this before, um, it usually goes pretty well. Like, people are very receptive to what I hear. Um, but when I talk about sexuality here, people are like, whoa, wait a second. There's like a thousand questions afterwards talking about, it's the total opposite from where I grew up. You know, in Memphis, if you want to teach on sexuality, they're like, yeah, that's right, go ahead. But if you want to talk on racial reconciliation, they're like, hold up just a minute. I don't necessarily want to hear this. So it's just kind of a weird flip-flop. So um, I come, and I often come, I, I bring all this cultural baggage where I'm like, I'm a little afraid to talk about this. But then I'm like, well, most, most people are very supportive and very excited about racial reconciliation uh, in churches around Boston, which is, which is a really good thing. Um, but, you know, some of us aren't, and there are different things that we can discuss, and I'm excited about jumping in with it. Uh, with you guys, jumping into it with you guys today. So talking about Advent, Advent is a series uh, that the church has done historically. If you didn't grow up in church or if you're new to Redeemer, you don't know what this whole Advent thing is. Advent is a season that the church has historically celebrated. It's part of the church calendar, which, you know, uh, City on a Hill, where I'm a pastor and, and Redeemer, we both respect the church calendar, like the church calendar, don't do everything with the church calendar, but we, we still are cognizant of it and try to respect it at times. But Advent is the, the period of the, the church calendar that's four weeks leading up to Christmas. It's not the same thing as Christmas, though. Because when you think about the Christmas season, the Christmas season is all about anticipation. It's all about, um, it's all about excitement and joy and all of these things, which are great things, and there's a time for that in the church. But Advent's a little bit different. The mood of Advent isn't as much uh, this this anticipation of excitement, but it's more of a longing, a waiting. It's, it's a yearning for Christ to come. In the season of Advent, what we do is it's, it's a darker season if, for Christians. It reminds us that the world is not right, and we are longing and yearning for a Savior to come and put the world back together. So what we're trying to do is we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites from um, 400 years before Jesus, you know, Le in fact, all of Israel's history, they're looking for a leader, they're yearning for a savior, they're yearning for a Messiah. Each person that comes offers a little bit of hope, maybe Moses, and, but yet Moses fails them. Maybe David, yet David fails them. And so over and over again, every prophet, every priest, every king, they're always failing the people of Israel. And then leading up to the 400 years before Jesus comes, there's a, just a period of silence. And there's no prophet. The people are just go through really a politically tumultuous time. And uh, the people of God, Israel, they're just saying, are we ever going to hear from God again? It's been silent for 400 years. Friends, that's like the, the, the pilgrims were here less than 400 years ago. Okay, So this is a long time to not hear from God when he had spoken so reg regularly. And so Advent, is what we do is we say, we're going to put ourselves in their shoes. 
because these, these Israelites were longing for the first coming of the Lord. And, and the word Advent is Latin for arrival or coming. They're waiting on the first coming of Jesus. And we also are waiting on a coming of Jesus. We're waiting on Jesus to arrive again to make the world a new and better and, and perfect place. We're waiting for him to come and restore the world, to undo the brokenness. And so when we are celebrating Advent, we have this longing, expectation, this waiting. Do you feel like God is silent in your life? If so, then Advent is for you. Are you affected by the tyranny of injustice or by the pain and suffering that all of us experience from time to time? These are things that we can talk about with Advent as we wait for a Savior to come and make the world new. Advent gets down into the gritty parts of your heart. It, it looks at the shadows, but it doesn't keep you there. Because the reality is, what, with Advent, at the end of Advent, there's always a light. At the end of Advent, there's always a light that breaks through. And that light is the life of the world. That light was God himself, is God himself, coming in the form of a baby, being born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger. But it's God shining through. It's the promise being kept. It's the awaited Messiah that the angels sing praises of, that the shepherds are excited about, that the kings give gifts to. This is God who's broken through the brokenness, who has come to restore the world. And that is what we long for. That's what the people of Israel were longing for, and it's what we continue to long for. So though Advent looks at the dark places in our hearts and the longings, the things that we can't do, it doesn't leave us there. It points us toward the Savior, this this this. Savior King baby who came to undo the brokenness in the world and who's coming again. And so as we talk about Advent, what you guys are doing, you're doing a little series just talking about the longings of your heart. Last week, I think that Claude spoke a lot about uh, freedom and uh, caring for the poor and just some of these longings that, that we all have. But this week, we're talking about finding your fulfillment for the great hope of rec racial reconciliation. Uh, racial reconciliation is a complex topic. It's a, it's a, a difficult topic to really talk um, comprehensively about, and I'm not going to be able to in the, in the short amount of time that I have with you. But here's, here's basically my thesis. Is I believe that the church, that the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church is the great hope for racial reconciliation in the world. Now, that's a lofty, that's a, like, you're like, of course you would say that, you're a pastor. That's a lofty, that, but that's a lofty claim, okay, to say that the great hope of re racial reconciliation in the world is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the church. And I say that while knowing that the church has traditionally, over the past several hundred years, done a terrible job with racial reconciliation. A terrible job with racial reconciliation. I mean, what's the most segregated hour of any week in the United States? Sunday morning. Churches, not racially diverse often, and they're very segregated. And the church has, has perpetuated issues in racial reconciliation. What were the racists uh, pre-civil rights era um, using to defend their racism? What were the slave owners using to defend their, slave, uh, their, their racism during that time, their slave-owning racism? 
They were using the Bible often, and the church has not done a good job of addressing these issues. This, there's a book that's been really highly influential for me called Divided by Faith. Uh, this is a really great book, so uh, if, if you want to pick up a book on this, this does a really good job of telling the history, and it, what it does is it tells it more from an academic perspective and not as much from a Christian perspective. Um, Divided by Faith, the Evangelical Religion and Problem of Race in America. And when they use the word uh, evangelical, they're talking about people that believe that the Bible is real and that Jesus is the way to God and that you should share your faith. They're not necessarily talking about just Trump supporters, okay? So the, the news is really, I mean, I, I've kind of come to hate the word evangelical because it doesn't, it doesn't mean what it used to mean. Um, but this is, when they wrote the book, that, that's what it meant. And so this is a quote from their book. Evangelicals, um, which is, you know, um, most, most, most people here would probably claim that title um, in that they believe the Bible and Jesus and sharing their faith. Evangelicals' desire to end racial division and inequality and attempt to think and act accordingly. Good desires. But in the process, they likely do more to perpetuate the racial divide than they do to tear it down. And that when I, when I, actually, I was reading this this week. Claude was like, you need to read this book before you come and speak on this. And I'm like, okay, I, I trust everything that Claude uh, suggests in that way. So I, I read it, and, I was, and when I read it, I was just like, well, what am I going to do? You know, like, we, we have good motivations, but we usually do more to perpetuate the racial divides than uh, tear them down. And so it just kind of caused me to take a step back and reevaluate everything. And um, as, as, before we jump into it fully, I want to tell you a little bit more about what it was like growing up in Memphis and, and who I am. Um, growing up there, it's a very racially charged place. Like, it's changed a lot over the years. I'm 30 years old. Um, but, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, that area, very racially charged. It, it was just a very uh, segregated area in a way. Uh, lots of um, hostility in a lot of ways. Uh, I had friends who uh, bragged about family members that were a part of the KKK. Uh, the N-word was something that I heard with regularity where I grew up. It was something that was spoken pretty plainly um, among friends and family even. Um, the school system that I was a part of um, in, in northern Mississippi, where I grew up, uh, close to Memphis, was... Uh, is segregated still. Like the federal government, if you, if, if you pay attention to this stuff really closely, you might have heard about this. The federal government issued this past year that they have to integrate. Um, and it's been a court case that's been in the, in the working for a long time. Uh, and even um, Larry Wilmore from the Larry Wilmore Show and Comedy Central did a whole bit about my high school that graduates 100 people every year. Um, so it's kind of crazy, the type of publicity that are there. But as I, as I grew up, though, these, these, and that's actually a really complex issue. I can explain more later, not enough time. But um, as I grew up with all of these issues, I never considered myself to be someone who has racial bias or prejudice or to be a racist. Um, in fact, I, I thought that most of these issues were from a previous generation. So most of the people that were the real racists in my mind and in my life, uh, most of them were, were my mom's age or older. Like that was a previous generation issue. And so I thought that as long as I love people and don't have personal bias or don't actively say terrible things like that, then I'm cool. 
until I moved here, and then I, I moved here, and I started for the first time in my life developing meaningful relationships with people of different ethnicities. Like, I'm not talking about, like, um, borderline uh, relationships, just acquaintances, but I, I've developed really close friendships with some, some friends from uh, Asian backgrounds and from uh, African-American backgrounds, and um, it's been very meaningful and, and helpful. And in so doing, I've understood and seen a lot of the systemic injustice that goes on in the world and a lot of ethnocentrism um, and racism that I didn't see before. So what did I start doing as I did this? Is, you know, your first step, what's your first step for any time you see something new? Start posting about it on Facebook, right? Um, so would post articles on Facebook just saying, hey, like systemic injustice going on. And for the most part, most of my friends were really supportive. And, and what actually ended up happening is I had a few African-American friends from high school who I didn't think that I had ever said anything to offend, but a few African-American friends from high school uh, really, one in particular sent me a message just saying, thank you so much for speaking up on these issues. Um, I really appreciate it. You said some really offensive things when we were in high school. I was in a lot of Christian leadership and, and spoke for different organizations like Fellowship of Christian Athletes and whatnot. And she said, you said some really offensive things when we were in high school. But I really appreciate what's happened to your heart, and I hope that you'll continue to, to speak out on these topics. And uh, that, that kind of broke me. I was just like, well, praise God that he's brought me to this place. But um, I didn't even know. I didn't even know that, that I had done these things to perpetuate uh, racial, racial um, bias or um, the, the racial um, issues that were going on in, the, in that time. So that's kind of com coming from where I am. I just kind of want to explain that because with this when you come speaking with a Southern accent on racial reconciliation, I feel like you need to give a little bit of background uh, for what's going on there. Um, let's talk a little bit about why we need racial reconciliation, because maybe you're one of these people that's saying, the news blows it all out of proportion. We had civil rights. We should be good. I mean, we, there's no shortage of um, uh, events that are racially charged in the United States. There's Trayvon Martin and the, the church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. There's case after case after case of police brutality. So these things are going on. But maybe you're one of those people that's just kind of skeptical in general, and you're saying maybe the news is blowing this all out of proportion. We have the civil rights era. And, and what I would say, and, and what I'm going to try to do, is sh show you that after 250 years, especially in the United States, now when we talk about race in the U.S., we usually talk white-black, all right? That's, that's because it's the most racially charged of all the different uh, ethnicities, but racism is not uh, foreign to any culture. Any culture in the world has, has different race issues. From what I understand, uh, in Asia, a lot, of, a lot of South Asians are discriminated upon. Southeast Asians are discriminated upon by uh, the, the, um, the other Asian uh, groups that you have in Northern Asia and uh, in, in Eastern Asia. So that's um, things that I understand happen. But when I talk about this, I'm going to use white-black because it's the most clear example that we have in front of us right now. Um, after and, and what I want you to see is that after 250 years of systemic injustice, I don't think there's any way to describe what happened to African Americans in uh, the United States in any other way than, say, systemic injustice. I mean, uh, they were kidnapped and enslaved without payment. Then once they were freed from enslavement, Jim Crow laws were initiated to where separate but equal, really meaning separate but very unequal um, uh, laws were put into place. And there was just 
all this animosity, and even through the civil rights era, you can watch documentaries like, um, like uh, And Still I Rise and Black America Since MLK. If you've seen that on PBS, it's wonderful. Okay, PBS documentary, just great. I'd recommend checking it out. I think you can watch it online for free. And what they do is they, they just tell you what black people have been through over the past 50 years since, since Martin Luther King Jr., and it's really amazing because what you see is that you can't undo 250 years of racial injustice uh, with one civil rights movement. You just can't undo it. One of the reasons why is because uh, you don't have the same starting place. You see, when I, in, in, in the Memphis area where I was born, my grandfather was a professor of a, at a university. Therefore, I had all these connections and relationships with people in academia and, and at the university. When my classmates were applying to go to school, or when their parents and grandparents were trying to go to school, they weren't even allowed to go to the same schools that my grandparents were allowed to. So therefore, I have a totally different starting point. I've got all these relationships and connections. I have different things to benefit me. Um, and, and this is privilege. Um, now, I'm not trying to support necessarily white guilt here, but it is privilege. I had a privilege in that there were connections that were already established for me that my African-American brothers and sisters or friends didn't have. And so, therefore, you have to see how you can't just undo this thing like that. It's impossible because a lot of where you are is informed by your past. Your past informs your present. And so you have to see that when you're talking about racism and race issues in the United States. Let me just tell you a few statistics to help you understand race issues in the United States. And, and this, some of these statistics, they're not causal, but some of these statistics are just going to show you how African Americans, by and large, are more um, at a disadvantage and how their communities are suffering in many ways. And... Um, I know that it's not like a home run, like this shows everything about uh, systemic injustice, but I think that you'll kind of get the point after I paint the picture a little bit, that, that our system is failing um, black people for the most part in, in the United States that it's been. Um, sentencing for black and Latinos, statistically speaking, is far stricter than it is for whites of the same, of the same offenses. And when you look at the stats, that's just one thing that happens. Drugs popular among minorities are more heavily penalized. If you look over the history, uh, cocaine and crack, essentially the same drug. Crack was much heavier, was much more heavily penalized uh, until recently. Um, I think they just made that change five or six years ago. Um, some law enforcement policies, such as stop and frisk, disproportionately target minorities. One in three black men will be incarcerated in their lifetime. Um, if you've never seen the documentary, okay, so I already talked about one documentary, I'm going to talk about another one. Um, it's, it's, there's one called 13th, and I would heavily uh, encourage you to watch 13th. It's on Netflix. Uh, everybody has Netflix these days. Uh, maybe not everyone, okay? If you don't have Netflix, I'll give you my password. You know, we'll work something out. Um, so 13th, uh, just really, really solid documentary about this, and it's just, it ta basically takes a book uh, called The New Jim Crow um, that was written, and it's really, that's a really helpful book, but what it does is it puts it in visual format in, in a two-hour uh, format so that it's easily digestible, and it's powerful. I mean, if you don't have a little bit of a tear, I don't know if you're a human in, in that book, in that movie. It's, it's really a powerful uh, documentary. 72% of black babies are born to unmarried mothers. 
whites are 89% more likely to be given coronary bypass surgery than blacks. Same issues, just more likely to get the surgery. Black babies die at a rate over twice the frequency of white babies. Black mothers are four times more likely to die in childbirth. And black women are five times more likely to have an abortion than white women. And so when you read all these statistics, you just have to say, why? Why? What is going on? What is happening here? And so for a moment, just, just pause all of your skepticism, if you have any skepticism here, and for a moment, just mourn with me, okay? And weep with those who weep and realize that people are suffering, that there's suffering going on, and no matter how you feel about how it's happened or who's at fault, they're suffering. And as Christians, our job is to mourn and to weep with that and to try to do something about it. Um, the reality is we live in a racialized society. And that, what I mean by racialized society, I'm, what I mean by that is that I'm not saying that everyone is a racist. In fact, what I would say is most white people, in fact, are very well-intentioned, well well-meaning. Most white people are very well-meaning. They don't want to perpetuate racism. They don't want to have racial bias. That's just the way it is. Um, but it's unavoidable that we live in a society that is racial, that we live in a racialized society. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that when white people want to move up in society, when, when you're a white person and you want to, um, you have an American dream of having a nice house with a nice school district and with nice parks, that means that as you work your way there, you work your way into wider and wider neighborhoods, basically. And so you're, you're segregating yourself by choice, normally is what that looks like. Um, Another example of just the racialized uh, society that we live in is over 90% of white people and 90% of black people also marry within their own racial group. And that's not saying there's any bias. That's not saying that there's any uh, prejudice. That's just saying that's the way it is, that we live in a country that race is an issue where you typically think about these things and you can't avoid them. Um, as a white Christian who speaks on these issues often uh, to other white Christians, I think that most Christians, as I said, were, were, are well-meaning, but they just have no idea how to talk about these things. They have no idea of the issues that are going on. And um, that's because we, we're in a majority culture. We just It's the water that we swim in. We don't understand. We don't see the issues that are happening with minorities. And so the question becomes, how do we reconcile these things? How do we bring... It together, okay? And uh, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about two, two basic principles, and then we're going to jump into some scripture, all right? And I'll give you some practicals, and then we'll be done. So two basic uh, principles for how you reconcile the races is uh, different people have thought about this differently. There's the individual responsibility aspect, and then there's the systemic injustice aspect. So if if you look at this, I'm going to talk about each of them independently and what they mean. So with indi individual responsibility goes like this. Each person has to work hard to get where they are going. And as long as I love people of color, I've done my part in, defend, in, in defeating racism. As long as I love people, I've done my part. And there's nothing else to it than that. You see, most white people view the race problem as 
the result of a few prejudiced individuals as opposed to any type of systemic injustice that's happening that they might be perpetuating. And so we think about it in terms of, as long as I cover me, I'm good. But unfortunately, uh, black people rarely have that privilege of being able to say, as long as I cover me, I'm good, because they live in a system that doesn't allow them to think that way often. So when you think about things with individual responsibility, and I'm not saying that this isn't an aspect of racial reconciliation, because I think it is, um, but usually people who say, you just have to, every individual is, is the way that you tackle this thing, you don't worry about the systemic issues, uh, you generally hear what they call the miracle motif. And the miracle motif says, convert as many people to Christianity as possible and you'll solve the world's problems. All right? How do you defeat divorce issues in the United States? Well, convert as many people to Christianity as possible. How do you, divo- how do you defeat uh, violent crimes? Convert people to Christianity. It's, uh, and how do, you com- uh, how do you defeat racism? Convert people to Christianity. And they say that that's all there is to it. It's that simple uh, step and that's all there is to it. But Um, I think when you look at it, there's so many bigger issues. And so while that is an aspect, because I think that converting people to Christianity really does make you other-centered and helps you understand where people are coming from, there is a whole other aspect of it uh, that's a systemic disadvantage, a systemic um, injustice. And so this is where we don't just think about converting people to Christianity, but we think about the entire systems and how can we undo the brokenness of the fall throughout all the systems of life and really roll back the systemic injustice that happens in the world. And I really think that when we think about uh, racial reconciliation, we have to think both and. We have to think individual responsibility, yes, and systemic injustice, definitely yes. And I think when you go back to that quote that I said at the beginning that most evangelicals want to, are well-meaning, want to do racial reconciliation, they just end up making it worse. The reason is because most evangelicals focus solely on individual responsibility and not any on the systemic injustice going on. And so as we are people who believe the message of Christ and believe that he is going to come into the world and make it a new place and make it a perfect place, he's going to undo the effects of the fall. One of the ways that he's going to undo the effects of the fall is he's going to do away with systemic injustice. Justice will rule and reign for thousands and millions and millions of years. Jesus will be Lord. We won't have to worry about who's president. Jesus will be Lord. He will rule justly, and there will not be any injustice. And that is what we long for, and that's what we hope for. But how do we get there, and what do we do between now and then becomes the question. As Christians, what do we do? And, and even as I talk about these issues, they're so complex, so complex. But I really do believe, as I said before, that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, through the church is the great hope. It's the great hope to see progress before Jesus comes. And here's why, okay? We're going to walk through a few passages. I have a few passages. If you have your Bible, you can open it up. Um, this is not your normal sermon. Normally at, Re- at Redeemer, uh, you just open up a Bible passage, you read the Bible passage, and Claude explains it to you. This is a little bit of a different style sermon today. So if you have your, your Bible web app um, or whatever it is, you can, you can open it up. We're going to bounce around a few different passages. 
Uh, Acts 6 is where we're going to start. Acts 6. I want to show you from the scriptures what um, the trajectory of racial reconciliation looks like. Acts 6, just verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in numbers, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's going on? This is early church. Acts is the story of the early church after Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, the Father. And what's happening is that the Greeks are being... um, racially discriminated upon. There's some systemic injustice that's happening here. The widows of those who are Greek aren't getting the same food as the widows of those who are the Hebrews. And so there, there arose an issue in the church. And actually, this, this issue is what started the office of deacon in the church. So you've heard deacon before. The office of deacon was created to help in a systemic injustice of race issue. That's, that's one of the first things. So you have to say the church cares about these things. It's one of the, an entire office of the church was created with this in mind. This was happening. The church has historically cared about this. Galatians chapter 2. Let's look at another passage. This is, this is probably my favorite passage uh, on race in the entire Bible. Uh, one, because I love the person of Paul. Paul is just like this bold dude um, he, he, yeah, it's awesome. This is great. So Paul confronts Peter in this passage, and, and this is great. So when he, he says Cephas, that means Peter. It's just another word for it. Um, but when Cephas came to Antioch, sorry, Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Um, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically among, along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by, his, by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's, it's Bible language, but it's awesome, okay, what's happening here. This is, this is such a killer move by Paul. He sees Peter discriminating upon a group of people. It's basically like high school lunch antics that's going on here, okay? Um, Whenever the Jewish, his Jewish comrades show up, he's not hanging out with the Gentiles anymore. He won't even eat with them because the Jew, Jewish folks showed up. And so uh, what's going on here is Paul walks straight up to Peter, confronts him to his face, and what does he say? He says, you are not living, you are not walking in step with the gospel. You're not walking in step with the gospel. You see, if you don't get racial reconciliation, you don't get the Bible because it's all over the place. Jesus came to create a new humanity that he came to make us family. And to allow racial bias to enter your heart is to live outside of the truth of the gospel that we have been united and made a family in Christ. 
Um, Ephesians 2, this is, this is another uh, seminal passage on this text. So Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16. I just want to show you it's everywhere. It's all over the New Testament. It's all over the place. He's talking about these issues. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You and I, all of us, alienated from God, separated from Christ. We've gone our own way. We need to be reconciled to God, is what he's kind of saying here at the beginning. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, Jesus has taken the penalty we deserve for going our own way and thus has brought us close to Jesus. He's brought us close to God. We've been reconciled to God. But then he he goes a step farther and he explains what this means. If we've been reconciled to God, if we've gone our own way and God's brought us back, what does it mean? For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Jesus came to bring reconciliation. He came to bring reconciliation between man and God, but in so doing, he put people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different races on converging tracks that are leading to the same place. And so in the church, there is no dividing wall of hostility. When Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross, on behalf of us, he tore that down. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And in himself, he created a new way of living, a new humanity where brothers and sisters are not defined by ethnic lines. All throughout history, brothers, sister, defined by ethnic lines. You're either in Israel or you're not a Jew. You're not a Hebrew Now Christ has come to create a new family, not defined by ethnic lines, but spanning every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. He's come to make a new humanity. And this humanity isn't a visible kingdom. He's come to create a kingdom, but it's not a visible kingdom. It is an invisible kingdom that is fighting for justice everywhere we see injustice, whose heart is after God's heart, who wants what God wants always. And we are called to be that kingdom. We are called to be that family, those people. That is what he has done for us. He has united us and brought us together. And the season of Advent helps us so much here, because we should be in wonder and amazement that he's fulfilled the longings of our heart in this way. You see, even when he was born in Bethlehem, and Mother Mary holding her in her arm, holding him in her arms, she's holding the one who would create a new humanity. And there's no wonder and amazement to that, that, that God himself would come as a child who would grow in wisdom and stature as a man 
to come and do this. And the last passage that I want us to look at is the great trajectory. Where are we heading here, and, and why do I know this is the promise of Scripture that God is going to make the world new, that he's going to bring us all together? It's Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. <laughs> this is the great trajectory of the Bible. This is the, at the end of time when God restores the world. This is what it's going to look like. And John describes it like this. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He tells us that the world ends with the greatest racial, racial reconciliation rally of all time, where you have every tribe, every tongue, every nation united together, chanting the same thing. Where does salvation belong to? You see, the, the world wasn't created originally with all these differences. They developed over time, but God, God contrary to what many people would say, God is not colorblind. God sees color, and he celebrates it, and he loves the ethnicities of the world. And in the end, he doesn't do away with our differences. He doesn't make us all the same, but he brings us together and helps us to celebrate and understand. Imagine being in a community where you can be understood no matter what, where people just understand where you're coming from. And as a minority, that's really hard when you're in a majority white church, as this one is. It's really hard because you just don't feel like people understand you, usually. You don't feel like you have a voice normally. At least that's, that's what I have been told as a pastor of a majority white church by our minority members and, and my friends. And so I think that it's really amazing for us to think about where this thing is going. Now, what are the steps between here and there? I don't really know. I don't really know, but I'm going to give you just a few practicals, okay? Just, these are quick. Just a few practicals. How can you be a part of this? How can you be a part of this vision, this, this vision of God to bring together all types of people? Um, and the first is get informed, all right? I, I just have like five of these. They're quick. Get informed, all right? Read The New Jim Crow. Read um, Divided by Faith. Read Bloodlines by John Piper, that's a great book if you're more of a theological bent. Uh, watch the documentary 13th. Watch the documentary and, and Still Arise, um, Black America Since MLK. These are great ways for you to understand. And I'll tell you, that is a great first step. If you can understand, um, if you can understand some of the issues, you're, you're going to have a leg up on everything else. The second one is, is get connected. Get connected to some people from, that are different than you. All right, And I'm not talking about just like subtle connections. I'm talking people from really different backgrounds and listen and try to understand and ask questions. And, you know, as, as white people, it's, this is challenging at times because what we end up doing is we make friends with people from ethnic minorities and then we that are ethnic minorities, and then we expect them to be bicultural. Okay, so th they have their culture, but then we expect them to be white enough to where they understand our culture to where they can explain it to us. And so they have to be bilingual culturally. They have to be able to speak both languages. And so when you go in, come in with an understanding heart 